You want but a chart? No, it doesn't belong to Voldemort. He just borrowed it. So you want the diadem with his soul in it? Okay, well, if it's pre his soul, it also belongs <laughs> oh, to the Oh, okay, in the 1500s. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It wasn't 1500s. It would have just been before Voldemort put a soul in it. Oh, I guess that's true. I'm thinking of, like, when Rowena was <laughs> No, I'm not. Fu- I'm not beating Rowena. What are we talking about? She beat the shit out of me. She was. Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Silver Call Review. I'm Madison, and I'm Daya. And today we are doing part four of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters twenty-five through thirty. But of course, we are starting off with our character and our spell of the episode. So today, our spell is actually a charm. It is Pierre Totem Locomotor, which is used to animate statues and armor. The etymology of this spell is that from the French Pierre, meaning stone, and the Latin totem, meaning total. And the magical moment for the spell is that in Deathly Hallows, Minerva McGonagall uses it to animate the statues and suits of armor throughout Hogwarts. It should also be noted that this charm is a variation of locomotor, though the targets become animated instead of simply moving where the caster directs them. This may be unique to the Hogwarts suits of armor and statues as McGonagall instructs them to, quote, do your duty to our school. So, normally a locomotive would just make something move, but this actually, like, makes them do things. Like, they actually have action. Which I think is fun. I think this, that's a good scene, like, in the movie. Like, actually seeing it come to life and stuff. So, I think that's a fun spell. Yeah. But Could you imagine being a student there? You don't know that that's what they do, and then all of a sudden you just see them hopping down, and you're like, they could do that the whole time? No, I'd be actually terrified. I think I would, my, I'd probably assume, like, a bad guy took him over. I would not assume that's, like our thing. I'd also want to know, like, who made the decision to put them in there. Right. And, like, who was like, yeah, this is a good, like, defense mechanism. What were they planning on defending against? That's true. And also, if it's, like, like, it said, like, it might be unique to Hogwarts things, so it's, like, how did they come up with this unique spell that's, like, just for this and stuff? Mm -hmm. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Our character of the episode is Griphook, first mentioned in Sorcerer's Stone. He is a male goblin, described as having long fingers, black eyes, sallow skin, large domed head, and a thin black beard. Uh, Skills and achievements include being a banker at Gringotts and detecting forgery in goblin-made metals. And a magic fact is that Griphook believes goblin-made objects should be returned to goblins after the wizard who bought them has died, which leads him to see the Sword of Gryffindor as rightfully his. Yeah. Which is not just, like, an ideology of him. It's for goblins goblins in general, general, which we'll find out from Bill in this section, actually. We'll talk about it. Um, And let's start talking about it now with chapter 25. So for the next couple of days, Ron is full of doubts over whether they should have tried to beat Voldemort to the Elder Wand, and Hermione is on the disagreeing end. She's glad that they didn't go. She thinks that the wand is evil. And Harry's just kind of not really worried about that. He's just worried that he didn't understand Dumbledore. Like, what did he mean? What did he want? Why didn't he just say it? And so as they're arguing about whether or not Dumbledore could be alive, because Ron believes that he could be and Hermione doesn't, Floor comes in and calls Harry, saying that Griphook wants to speak with him in private. So they go to his room, and Griphook tells them that he has decided that he is going to help Harry get into the Lestrange's vault, but for a price. 
and that price is the Sword of Gryffindor, as we just talked about, because he views it as his. He tells them that before it was Gryffindor's, it belonged to a famous goblin king named Ragnar I, and it was wrongfully taken by humans. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione leave the room to kind of discuss about this, whether they're going to do it, and they decide that they have to. It's the only possible way. Um, but they f need the sword in order to destroy the Horcruxes. So Harry says, you know what, we'll agree, but we'll, like, tell him, we'll give it to him after the vault, but not exactly when. So he's being a little sneaky about it. Um, and Harry even has, like, moral dilemmas about being sneaky, but he's like, whatever, we need to do this. So they go back to Grip Hook, they shake hands on the deal, and over the next several days, they make plans to break into the bank, and as they're doing this, they kind of realize that Grip Hook is kind of, like, bloodthirsty and kind of... <laughs> kind of terrible. A little bit of a bad person, yeah. And Harry says, like, oh, this is just like planning the ministry, which I was like, no, it isn't, because you went into that ministry plan completely raw, no real planning about it. At least this time, they're taking weeks to prepare. They did prepare in the book. In yeah. the movie, they didn't. In the book, they prepared for the ministry. Not as much as they're preparing for this, though. This is definitely a better thought out plan, even though it might not go well. They definitely prepared for this one a lot better. But it turns out that Griphook is not a fan of everyone, like anyone. Floor hates him, um, but she and Bill are going to do what they can to help Harry and make sure to keep him safe. So eventually Mr. Ollivander has recovered and he's ready to leave. So Bill takes him to Auntie Muriel's along with a tiara that Floor had borrowed for the wedding. Um, and when he returns, Luna brings up the replica diadem. Um, that her father is building because they're talking about this tiara. Lots of foreshadowing going on yeah. here. Yeah, and it annoys me that no one thinks to pay her any attention. Like, you know that the Horcruxes have something to do with the Hogwarts founder, so if she keeps bringing up Ravenclaw's diadem, Ravenclaw's diadem, like, maybe just ask her about it. Like, well, be I, like, oh, well, what is it, Luna? Like, instead of them being like, oh, she's I it was oh, necessarily an babbling. ignoring thing, though. They were talking about, they saw the replica. That was what the, that was the part that they focused on. So it wasn't they were ignoring her. I just think they focused on the wrong part. I mean, that's true. But I still think they should have maybe asked her a little bit more about it. You know he's looking for Hogwarts, like Hogwarts founders things. But as they're settling down for dinner, uh, an unexpected guest shows up and we find out that it's Remus Lupin. So he is there and he's super happy because he's announcing that his child has been born. It's a healthy baby boy that they named Ted after Tonks' father. And I find it really funny that while he's announcing himself, he's like, my name's Remus, I'm a werewolf, you told me the password so I could come here in case of an emergency. And I like that announcing his child's birth is an emergency to him. I think it's really cute. I think it's funny the way he says it, he sounds like an answering machine. Like, he just sounds like an imposter. Like, if someone's, like, if you ever came to my door and be like, my name is Andrea and I am here because you said that I could knock on your door when this, and I'd be like, that is not Andrea. That's weird. <laughs> That's in fact not her. No, I know. It's a very specific way that he introduces himself, but it is actually Remus. So he comes in, they um, all hug, they congratulate him, and then he asks Harry if he'll be um, Teddy's godfather, and Harry, of course, agrees. And then they all raise a toast to Teddy Remus Lupin, and he stays a while, they have some wine, and they're all just very happy in this time, which I think is nice. Like, this is like a war book, so yeah. it's nice to see these happy moments. And I know that, like, we aren't the biggest fans of Remus and Tonks together, not because of the, anything to do with their characters, but that putting them together just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and there wasn't a whole lot of development of it. Yeah. But I do like seeing him happy, because we don't 
get to except for like this little bit. I know. And I also just really like Teddy. I like Teddy as like a character despite being a Remadora spawn, as I said before. But yes, and then Remus has to go home. So after, you know, they're all cleaning up, Bill kind of pulls Harry to the side because they both notice that Griphook's been kind of going off by himself um, and he did it earlier after the Tiara conversation. So he wants to warn Harry that he needs to be careful when making deals with goblins because they have a very different idea of what payment and, f- and fairness is uh, rather compared to humans. So he tells them that he needs to be es- extra careful about cheating on a deal that he makes with the goblin because it could be very dangerous. Um, so Harry suspects that Bill knows more than, like, he's letting on or, like, has guessed, which I think is valid. I feel like he yeah, definitely does. Not stupid. <laughs> like, he definitely knows what's going on. If there's someone that I was gonna ask for help, it'd, it'd be, Bill. be Bill. Weasley. He worked as a curse breaker at Gringotts for how many years? Like, I, it shocks you're, me that yeah. they're not like, talking to him at all. I get you, like, don't want to involve him, but, like, you're in war. He's already in hiding with his wife. You might as well, like, include Bill for some guidance because Griphook, yes, he knows the place, but you can't trust him. Bill knows the place, and Thank you can you. trust him. Mm-hmm. So at least include him for, like, if you don't take him with you, at least run it by him and see what he thinks. If He probably, honestly, would have thought of the what they run into, the problems that they run into that yeah. we'll discuss in the I was next gonna couple say, chapters. I was like, he probably knows that those are there, that they might activate, etc. Exactly. Yeah, I fully agree. But Harry at least, you know, keeps this in mind. And then as they're walking out, Harry's a little sentimental by the wine that he's drunk. And so he reflects to himself that he's already as reckless of a godfather to baby Teddy as Sirius was to him. Which, damn! (laughs) Ouch. I think one of my favorite parts of this chapter, too, is when he opens up and he's talking about... He's kind of considering the fact that he chose not to go for the Elder Wand first. The, he says that he can't think of a time he chose not to act, and I just think that that much is clear yep. from all these books that you don't think. <laughs> that is very valid, Harry. I'm glad we're becoming self-aware. Yeah. So anyways, we're starting chapter 36, and it's finally time to break into Gringotts, and the trio have just enough polyjuice for Hermione to become Bellatrix, using a hair from the sweater that Hermione was wearing in Malfoy Manor, extra convincing because they have her actual wand. Which they were so lucky that it was actually Bellatrix's, like, hair. Because, like, in second year, they thought it was Millicent and it was the cat. So it's like, if I was Hermione, I'd have PTSD of doing this again. (laughs) I'd be like, ooh. Maybe not. Maybe not, guys. So at this point, most of them actually don't have their own wands. Hermione's obviously using Bellatrix's. Luna just got a new one from Ollivander, luckily, but Dean doesn't have one. Harry's using the Snatcher wand, so the wand's really just going to shit. Yeah, no, that's a really tough situation there. Harry, however, does have Draco's wand, which responds pretty well to him since he won it. So now the trio and Griphook get up to leave early in the morning, having shared only the bare minimum details with Bill and the others, but Bill did give them a new tent since the other one got left behind during the Snatcher ordeal. And I was, I feel like I was wondering how they managed to keep all their stuff during all that, but Hermione put it in her sock. Which is, which makes me wonder, like, how, how is the bag? Yeah. I don't understand. Because I, whenever I think of it, I think of the movie bag. Yeah. And there's no way the movie bag fits in a sock. No, so. I don't know what t- size her bag is either. So, um, Hermione, of course, is transforming into Bellatrix using the polyjuice, uses her wand to transform, like, Ron's appearance, like, giving him a beard and stuff. And then Harry and Griphook are just kind of going to be under the invisibility cloak. So... Hermione, this this line is just for fun, because Hermione asks Harry how she did with Ron's disguise, and Harry responds with, well, he's not my type, but he'll do. That is canon by Harry Potter. I'm taking that <laughs> as confirmation. <laughs> That's so fruity. Something else that caught my eye here, just, he says, like, oh, it's, like, chilly now that it was May, 
The Battle of Hogwarts happens on May 2nd, and I knew that, but I don't know, it never clicked with me that the rest of this book, the rest of it happens in the span of 48 hours. Yeah. Like, that They is, are go, go, go after Yeah, this. like, I kind of, I don't know, I just kind of forgot about that, so when he said that, he was like, now that it's May, I'm like, it's May 1st? I'm like, but the battle's May 2nd. I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. It's all gonna pick up from here. After, like, several, like, the beginning of the book all being across, like, months and months of time, now it's, like, really picking up. Yep. So they apparate to the outside of the leaky cauldron, which is deserted. Hermione makes the mistake of telling Tom good morning, and everyone's like, don't do that, too nice, too nice. However, when you think about it, if Bellatrix walked up to me, like, all polite and was like, good morning, I'd be like, mmm... Like, that would also scare me. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, why are you being nice to me? What and are you going like, to do? Oh my god, I'm going to die now. <laughs> yeah. So, they walk through the mostly abandoned and now dingy Diagon Alley, and a man questions Hermione, a.k.a. Bellatrix, on what Voldemort did with his children before, like, reaching for her throat. But he gets, like, nowhere because Ron instantly, like, stuns him. Slay. I mean, that was kind of a slay on his part. Good job, Ron. And unfortunately for them, they run into Travers, which, if you'll remember, is a Death Eater. And he's surprised to see Bellatrix, given that she and the Malfoy family are supposed to be confined to the manor after the escape, which we discussed in the last section. But Hermione does a good job of explaining this away, since she is a most faithful servant. She really got on her feet there, and I know, yeah, I'm proud of her. So Hermione introduces Ron as Dragomir Despard. Interesting name. Sure. Yeah. Which is a wizard from Transylvania who speaks very little English, but supports the Dark Lord's aims. Sure, yeah. Dragomir. I mean, I th- it's valid, I think. Yeah, he doesn't speak English, so we don't have to worry about him talking. Because he would sound like Ron, because he's not Polyjuice and stuff. So I think it's a solid... Yeah. Solid excuse. Weird name, but solid excuse. Um, double whammy. Travers is also going to <laughs> Gringotts, so he offers to head there together. And so they get there, and there's actually wizards stationed at the doors with probity probes, which, again, is a, a name. stupid name. <laughs> they detect concealed magical objects and enchantments. If you remember from back when they used to, they did that one year for the students that went into the school. And so Harry manages to confound them both as they approach. And so they get inside. Hermione tells the goblin she needs to see her vault, and the goblin asks for identification and suggests that her wand will suffice. In this moment, Griphook and Harry realize that they must know her wand was stolen, so they'll figure out their imposters. So Harry uses the Imperious Curse for the first time on the Goblin, then on Travers to make them think it's a new wand and that's completely normal. Which, Hermione's confused, but honestly, kudos to Harry for pulling it off. Yeah, I know. And thank God Hermione kept her mouth shut, because imagine if she just kept asking questions. Yeah. So the Goblin, Bogrod, gets the clankers... No specification on what that means. And they set off with Travers to the vault. Once they pass through the doorway into the stone passage, Harry just removes the cloak since Bogrod and Travers are under the Imperious Curse anyway. There's no point in hiding. And he tells Ron and Hermione, like, oh, don't worry, I put them under the Imperious Curse. And they don't react. Your best friend just told you he did an unforgivable twice, and they're like, okay. Like, what? I was like, how do you not even comment on it? They're just like, sure. Sick magic, dude. (laughs) Dude. We have nothing to say about this? All right. (laughs) So Harry sends Travers away to hide while Bogrod uses a cart to drive them deep into the tunnels. And unfortunately for them, it passes through a waterfall before overturning and throwing them all from it. Luckily, Harry Hermione uses a cushioning charm to break their fall. Unluckily, the waterfall is actually called the Thief's Downfall. Sick-ass pun. And Griphook informs them it washes away all magical enchantments and concealment. So Hermione and Ron now look normal and the Imperious Curse is lifting on Bogrod. And Griphook tells them that this means they know there are imposters in Gringotts and they've set off defenses against them. 
which is why we were mentioning earlier, Bill probably would have known that this was a possibility and probably could have worked around it. So, I know. It makes me wonder, why would you not have this waterfall just, like, at, like, I know it's, like, a defense, but, like, why would you not just have that at all times and at the beginning? Like, this is such a foolproof way of making sure no one can get in. So why have it, like, deep in Gringotts that you have to turn it on? Like, I feel like it just makes sense. Have it at the beginning. Maybe they just just have everyone go through it. They have drying charms, so getting wet isn't an issue. They just don't want to feel like their people are disrespected. Like, if, Bell- if you tell Bellatrix that she has to walk under that, she's going to be mad. I mean, I guess, yeah. But, like, for safety, I feel like, it- I feel like, I don't know, I wouldn't understand. I'd be like, yeah, okay, I'll get wet for a second to ensure that no one gets into my fucking vault. Yeah, but Bellatrix is not understanding. That's Bellatrix the point. Like, those unhinged. old families, they're not understanding, I don't I think. I guess that's fair. So, Harry quickly puts Bogrod back under the Imperious Curse and tells him to take them to the vault, which they find is protected by a large dragon that has definitely been trapped under there for a long time and has definitely suffered. So, Griphook tells them the dragon is partially blind and has learned to expect pain the sound of the clackers, so now we know what clackers are. (laughs) So, they use that to get past the dragon, and Bogrod opens the vault, revealing a room crammed with treasure. And so, the door closes behind them, but it's okay because Bogrod can let them out. And it turns out that everything in the room is cursed with the Gemino and Flagrante. Flagrante? How do you say it? Well, I don't remember how it's spelled. I don't Is there an N in there? I thought it was Flagrante. Okay, maybe... But maybe I spelled it wrong. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe maybe I spelled it wrong. Flagrante. And so everything they touch burns and multiplies. So they carefully look, trying not to touch anything, but... um, they're obviously looking for, Harry thinks it's Hufflepuff's cup, but they're also keeping an eye out for anything that has to do with Ravenclaw because they're not sure which technically one? which one's in there. So they find the cup, but unfortunately it has been placed on a shelf that's way out of reach, and Harry can't even get it with the sword. So Hermione just is like, Leva Corbus to get him closer, but he's like flailing around and hitting things, obviously causing them to multiply. And not only does the metal like physically burn them when they touch it, but the heat it gives off makes it hotter in there, so they're like drenched in sweat they're getting physical burns and, and just drowning. being surrounded by gold yep. so the treasure is multiplying uncontrollably but harry does manage to grab the cup with the sword but drops the sword shortly thereafter and grip hook is the one to grab the sword flinging the cup from its end but harry is able to grab the cup before it's lost in like the mountain of gold and the cup is just like actively burning his hand and multiplying but he just holds on to it and, they, and eventually the goblins on the outside open the door. They spill out of it, which, good timing because they were in rough shape. Yeah, no, I agree. And as soon as they're out, Griphook takes the sword and runs, which good, I, I would too. I can't, I can't like, I mean, really fault on that one. While the trio are cornered by a group of goblins and Harry quickly uses Stupefy to get past them and f- like freeze the dragon, telling Hermione and Ron to get on. And at this point, I'd be like, sir, you want me to what? You want me to do what now? <laughs> on the dragon? Okay, um, think about it for maybe more than two seconds. Yeah, so, and then Hermione is, like, expand, helping the dragon get out pretty much, like, blasting holes in this passageway, and eventually the dragon does crash through the marble hallway and into Diagon Alley, and they're out. See, my thing here is, though, I really want to know how much damage they caused. Like, could you put a numerical, like, price <laughs> on how much did it cost to repair this? Because, damn, not only did they fuck up, the whole bottom part and all the tunnels, they blast through this, like, beautiful marble corridor and out the roof. 
Yeah. Yep, that's a really good point. It also makes me wonder, like, now there's just, like, a giant hole going all the way down. Yeah. Can you repair the hole? Like, more rock? Like, you obviously you can repair the tables and the roof and stuff, but, like, what about that giant tunnel they just created? I don't know. If they they turn into a slide. Just power, just... Like, does that, like, if they just use the spell, does it just move the rocks back in place? Oh, does that work for, like, elemental stuff? I don't know. I feel like if it just crumbles down, if they do that, I guess then it wouldn't cost anything to repair it because they can just repair, repair. it. I, that's true because they could do that for everything. everything. That's, that's dumb. Oh, must be nice God, being a wizard, man. <laughs> dang it. <laughs> it was a good question, though. Yeah, I want, well, because, okay, maybe then if, if we weren't cheating and being wizards, <laughs> how much would it cost to repair the wizarding bank? There you go. How much would muggles have to pay to repair the wizarding bank? Assuming. Exactly. <laughs> right. So then we get into chapter 27. So when we begin this chapter, Harry is worried because one, uh, flying on a dragon that you can't steer is stressful because obviously you don't know where it's going to go and how they're going to get off. But two, he's also nervous about how long it's going to take for Voldemort to figure out what's going on. So the dragon ends up soaring by a landing with some mountain lakes and they decide to jump into one of the lakes as it glides lower so they won't notice them. So they do that, and as they drag themselves out of the lake and onto shore, Harry immediately sets up all of their protective spells, and they start um, putting on, like, dittany and stuff on their bruise, like, burns and bruises and stuff, because they are fucked up from mm-hmm. that vault. Um, and then Hermione also has pumpkin juice and fresh robes for them, so they all take a minute to kind of clean up, have a drink, and then they start debriefing. So the good news, they have the horcrux. The bad news, they lost the sword because Griphook fucking took it. So they have nothing to destroy it with. So Hermione starts, like, sadly musing about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen to the dragon. And then this kind of makes him laugh, and they burst into hysterical laughter, wondering whether anyone will notice that they've broken into Gringotts, which is the real concern other than the dragon. But I just thought it's nice that they had this, like, moment to just kind of... They just went through this, like, really stressful thing, and they can still, like, laugh. Yes. Um, uh, unfortunately for them, they're like, do you think that... The- <laughs> I'm going to say yes. They, they might notice. They might notice. Um, I the giant so. hole and the dragon really made a <laughs> really made an impact. Really. Um, but as they're in the middle of laughing and having a good time, of course it has to go immediately to shit because Harry's head splits with pain and he's kind of in his Voldy headspace again. So he sees Voldemort is furiously questioning a Gringotts goblin who admits to him that the trio managed to break in and steal a golden cup. So obviously this enrages Voldemort. He kills the goblin and everyone else who happens to be in close range and Lucius and Bellatrix like run okay. out of there because I, I like the fact that they know that even they're not safe. Like when yeah. he's on this rampage, you just gotta get out. everyone. Yeah. So Voldemort's mind is like full of questions. So he's like, how much does Harry know? How does he know it? He's like, wouldn't I have felt it if he has destroyed my horcruxes already because they're part of my soul? Um, And then he's like, oh, but I didn't feel the diary. But also I wasn't human. I was like a miss. So maybe that's why. He's just, he's stressing out. I think it's funny because we had a whole discussion about whether or not he would feel it or know it all. And then he has this whole internal monologue thinking the same Same thing. thing. (laughs) I know. Um, But he tries to, like, put doubt out of his mind. He's like, nah, there's no way Harry could know about the others because no one knows I'm related to the Gaunts, no one knows about the cave, and only I know that I hid one at Hogwarts. So he's, like, going through this. So he's going through his hidey spots. 
Um, and then he also mentions Nagini, who is a snake, and we get confirmed that she is another Horcrux, and he, he like, tells himself, like, okay, she's never leaving my side. But he's still nervous, so he's like, I'm just gonna go revisit the shack and revisit the lake, just in case, and then I'm gonna warn Snape, who is headmaster at Hogwarts, if we'll remember, that Harry might go to Hogwarts to make sure it's safe. But the frustrating part is that he never tell, like, thinks about where in Hogwarts it's hidden, he just thinks Hogwarts. But at least now we know that it's there, so this is a positive for the group. So Harry, like, wakes up from his trance and he instantly is like, action. He's like, it's at Hogwarts, we've got to go there now before he moves it. So they all get under the invisibility cloak and they apparate to Hogsmeade. Unfortunately for them, as soon as they enter Hogsmeade, they set off an alarm that gives a loud screaming sound and Death Eaters burst outside. I think the best part is they try to go, Accio Cloak! <laughs> and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, which is funny. Because um, Harry grabs onto it and he's like, oh, it didn't move. Yeah, we're good. It's fine. So the trio try to sneak away but are intercepted by some Dementors. And at this point, Harry really has no choice but to cast a Patronus to protect them giving away their position, and everyone knows that his Patronus is a stag, so they know it's him. But as the Death Eaters close in, a man opens the door to the Hogshead and tells them to get in. So the trio head upstairs while the barkeep goes outside and tells the Death Eaters off for sending Dementors at him, asserting he was at the- he set off the caterwauling charm when he let his cat out. Which, why is he letting his cat out? I don't know, but honestly, I have to give Aberforth props for this, because this is a man who's thinking on his feet. Like, he's yeah. kind of a genius, like, everything he came up with. And he tells him off, too, because he casts his Patronus, he's like, it's a goat, you idiot, not a stag. And the guy's like, no, I swear, it it's was a weird. stag. And I imagine the other Death Eaters are like, dude, you're so dumb, idiot. It's a freaking goat. So, Harry, at this point, notices that, um... There's a large portrait of a girl on the wall, underneath it a small mirror. So when the barkeep enters the room, he realizes this is the eye that he's been seeing in his piece of the mirror, and it looks just like Dumbledore's because this is Aberforth Dumbledore, and he is the one who sent Dobby to help them. So Aberforth feeds them and then starts planning a way to get them out safely and into the mountains where Hagrid is hiding, but Harry tells him he has to go to Hogwarts. Now, they kind of argue for a bit. Aberforth asserts that Harry should save himself and not get trapped by Albus's schemes and plans that he isn't prepared or qualified for, which is valid. Valid. And he says Albus is a natural and at secrets and lies, insinuating Albus wasn't honest with Harry. Damn, Aberforth. Really tear him apart. Oh, Just hit after hit after hit, bro. Yeah. So at this point, Hermione breaks, like, up the convo by asking Aberforth if the girl in the picture is his sister, Ariana, which, you know, this leads him to saying, as a warning to Harry, that the people Albus cared about very much ended up in a worse state than if he'd left them alone. Big yikes. Brutal. (laughs) Brutal. Aberforth is not holding back. He's just going punch after punch. He's, Albus, Albus isn't here to defend himself. No, literally. He's like, fuck him. Yeah. So he said that when Ariana was six, she was doing magic in the back garden, which she couldn't control at the time because she was a child, and was spotted by three muggle boys who were spying through the hedges, and when she couldn't show them the trick, he says they, quote, got a bit carried away trying to stop the little freak doing it, insinuating that they, like, beat her to a pulp, pretty much. A six-year-old child. So apparently this destroyed her, and she wouldn't use her magic, so it festered and exploded outward when she couldn't control it. 
The boys are the muggles that their father attacked, which got him sent to Azkaban. And he never revealed why he did it, because they would have taken Ariane and locked her up. So they started the facade that she was ill and moved around a lot to avoid exposure of what she was. We know now from watching, if you've watched Fantastic Beasts, what this is called is an Obscurus. Um, they don't really go into a lot of detail about it here, all other than, you know, there's this magic festering in her because she doesn't know how to use it and she refuses to use it. And when she gets really worked up, it kind of bursts out and causes damage. So, which I think it's interesting that, like, she doesn't, like, she describes it so well, but she doesn't name it here. Mm -hmm. Because in the movies, they know it's called an Obscurus. Like, they they say that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, why wouldn't Aberforth say that here if he knew what it was? So it makes me think, I'm like, maybe she just hadn't thought of the name. She knew she wanted to go somewhere with it, but she didn't, like, want to think of the name yet and stuff. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Because, like, we know what like we know what it is. But they also kept it such a big secret because they would have taken her away. So maybe speaking to that, that's what she is, you know what I mean? Like That makes sense, yeah. Um. So, yeah, so when Ariana was uh, 14, she went into a fit of rage, and that was, she accidentally killed her mother with the magical outburst. And this is the point where Albus comes home to be head of the household and look after Ariana so that Aberforth could continue his schooling. And a few weeks later, Grindelwald shows up, um, an equal for Albus to talk to, who is just as bright and talented. So there's a little bit of resentment here from Aberforth, which I guess is justified. Yeah. And so looking after Ariana got pushed to the side as they planned a new wizarding order and looked for the Hallows, all for the greater good. So before he left for Hogwarts, Aberforth confronted the two, saying that they had to stop his planning and whatnot because they couldn't move Ariana where they want, where they planned to go. And this kind of caused a big argument to break out in which Grindelwald called him a stupid little boy who didn't understand their vision. And this argument escalated into a duel between Aberforth, Albus, and Grindelwald that ended in Ariana's accidental death. So Aberforth views this as like a loss, a loss of someone that he loved, but Albus, but he suggests that Albus saw it as a loss of a burden, which is where that resentment comes from. And Harry finally tells Aberforth he's going to keep going until he succeeds or dies, so he might as well help them if he can. Like, this is all well and good, like, unfortunate that that happened to his sister, and unfortunate that Albus kept all these secrets, but Harry can't stop, and he's not willing to. So, at this point, Aberforth turns to the painting and tells, tells her, you know what to do, and she simply gets up, turns around, and walks away from them down the like path depicted in the painting, returning a few moments later with a white dot now behind her at the end of the tunnel, followed by a very disheveled but very excited Neville Longbottom. Whoop whoop! Hello Neville, welcome back. So the portrait door opens and Neville is looking worse than they've ever seen him. He is covered in bruises, he's covered in cuts, but he's very excited to see them and he also lets Aberforth know that a few more people will be arriving. So He's told some people that Harry is here. So they thank Aberforth, Harry thanks Aberforth for saving their lives twice, and then he, Ron, and Hermione follow Neville um, down the painted tunnel, which turns out is a secret entrance into Hogwarts, like, so secret that, like, even the Marauder's Map didn't know about it. Yeah. So Neville starts filling them in on what's going on. So the Caro siblings, two Death Eaters who teach there have been dominating and punishing students like all year long and um, they've taken over Defense Against the Dark Arts which is now just Dark Arts and Muggle Studies which is now just teaching about how awful Muggles are. 
So Neville has become the rebel here, and all of his cuts and bruises are for talking back to the Karos. However, he does mention that they don't want to spill too much pure wizarding blood, so they haven't been killing students, just torturing them. That's crazy. The bare minimum. That's so crazy. He also says that they practice the Cruciatus Curse on kids who get detention. Yeah. Which is so whack. No, that's insane. Which is so whack. Which also is probably also going to fa- backfire, because if they're teaching kids how to do the Cruciatus Curse... They can now use it. They're going into war, they can now use it, that's so... That's a really good point, yep. And Neville has, Neville has gotten sassy. No, he has. He's talking back just like Harry um, used to back in the day, which he mentions. He's like, he noticed how when Harry used to talk back, it like sparked hope in people. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of taken over that to make sure people don't give up. Yeah. And I think this time where he's like explaining his punishments, like you're saying, is kind of a reflection of just how brave that he has become. Because obviously, like, there were a lot of doubts about him being in Gryffindor. But I think that the way that they've shown him grow into this last book, like, this Neville deserves to be in Gryffindor. Yeah, I agree. I agree. He is a true Gryffindor, which we'll see later. But it turns out that this little resistance that has built at Hogwarts has been communicating with the fake galleons that Hermione gave them, like, way back in Order of the Phoenix during Dumbledore's army, which is a fun little callback. Yeah. And Ginny, Luna, and Neville were kind of the leaders of this rehabilitated Dumbledore's army but Luna was taken away at Christmas obviously and then Ginny apparently didn't come back to school after Easter so that leaves Neville in charge and they were trying to get Neville to stop this like rebellion he's leading so they went after his grandma who was his only family but Augusta fought back like a champ and she put the Death Eater who came to capture her in the hospital so now she's on the run but she did send Neville a letter that she's very proud of him and that he is his parents' son, she which I think with Gran. I think is very sweet. So. Yeah, I think I wish that um, J.K. Rowling had thought about when she had written these books, doing a companion novel to be from either Ginny, Luna, or Neville's point of view for the time at Hogwarts they were gone. Probably not Luna because Luna gets kidnapped. But if they did um, Neville, who was there the whole time, and do that companion novel, so that at the same time. You, you can, like, see. tandem read them. Yeah, bit. you can tandem read them. So if, like, you see what Harry and the trio were doing, and then here's an Evel telling you about what's happening at Hogwarts. at Hogwarts leading up to Harry finally returning. Yeah, I think that would have been very fun because, yeah, like, Neville's filling us in, but it's, like, there's still so many things that, like... So many details, yeah. You wonder about. a really good book, yeah. I think. I agree. So after they went after his grandma, Neville kind of realized, like, okay, I've got to disappear. They're actually going to, like, kill me this time. Um, But he didn't know where to go. And then um, it turns out we get our answer because they emerge from the tunnel into a strange room that's full of hammocks, bookcases, and tapestries with the Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, and Hufflepuff emblems. Not Slytherin because fuck any Slytherins, even the innocent first years who might need to be protected. Thanks, guys. And they don't recognize it, but we come to find out that it's actually the room of requirement. So Neville explains that he was being chased by the Karos and escaped into the room because it knew that he needed a hideout. And then as other students came needing, like, escape, the room would expand and grow to accommodate them. Which is nice. Shout out to the room of requirement. And then Seamus Finnegan um, is here, and he looks worse than Neville, but he excitedly tells them, like, oh, Neville's, like, figured out the whole room, he knows how to ask for the right things, and so basically the point is the Carols cannot find them there. The Carols, like, don't even know that the room exists. That's how specific Neville is yeah. with asking for Which it. Which is great. They've learned from the mistakes of when they used it 
um, as the DA headquarters and they were found out. And I think it's really cool that they were able to find out how to like avoid capture. Yeah, I think that's really good. And it's obviously it's really good for them that they're able to be safe here. So they kind of look around and they notice that there's a lot of people here that they know from the DA, like Lavender Brown, Padma and Parvati Patil, Terry Boot, Ernie McMillan, all these other people. Um, so they're all kind of talking about what's been going on. Neville tells them like, oh, all of the stories that we've heard are true. They did break into Gringotts. They, they did ride a dragon. But before they can kind of move on, Harry is overwhelmed by pain in his scar again. And this time he sees that Voldemort is at the Gaunt family shack and he knows that the ring Horcrux is gone. So time is short. They need to start fighting the Horcrux at Hogwarts because if he knows the ring is gone, he's not going to take him much long to check the lake and then eventually he's going to be here. So Harry tells the Dumbledore's army room that they have to do something, that Dumbledore left them a task but nobody else can help. And obviously this like does not go over well with everyone because they had all assumed that since Harry returned they would all kind of revolt and take over Hogwarts and this is kind of like further proved when Luna and Dean show up um, and because they're the couple of people that Neville had told Aberforth mm-hmm. about um, and they show up and they agree like Dumbledore's army is now Harry's army and they're ready to fight for him and he needs to help them let them help him. More people show up, Fred, George, Ginny, Lee Jordan, and Cho Chang, and they are in agreement. Everyone wants to fight. I would agree, though. Like, at this point, you know the time's ticking. Like, the clock is ticking. He's coming, and it's gonna like it's gonna go down at Hogwarts. So you might as well use all of them to help you and find this Horcrux. Like, yeah. this is the last one that you don't know where it is. You don't know what it is technically. You might as well use them. You've also got a room full of Ravenclaws. I was going to say, I was like, you, he, it's smart to use your resources. You know you're looking for something Ravenclaw related. You have all these Ravenclaws. Why wouldn't you mm-hmm. ask for their help? So they, the trio kind of discuss this for a second, and Ron is like, no, we should accept their help, and Hermione agrees. And this kind of causes Harry to remember what Aberforth had so bitterly said about Albus's secrecy, and he decides that he doesn't want to be like that. He needs to open up. So he tells the entire room that they're seeking something to destroy Voldemort and that it has to do with Rowena Ravenclaw. Luna pipes up and she says that it might be Ravenclaw's lost diadem, which she's mentioned before. However, the whole point is that it's, you know, lost. Um, But Cho suggests that Harry go up to Ravenclaw Tower to look at the statue of Ravenclaw, which in which she's like wearing the diadem. So he at least has an idea of what it looks like and maybe that could help. Um, and she's like, I can take you. And then Ginny's like, no, Luna will take him. It's so funny. <laughs> it's just really Not funny. Even, didn't even miss a beat. She's like, no, it's okay. Luna will do it. Won't you, Luna? And she, Luna's like, yep, I'll go. So they go up there. They're under the invisibility cloak. Um, and they enter the Ravenclaw common room where the entrance is not a password. It's a riddle told by the Ravenclaw knocker, which we knew from our Ravenclaw episode. But like if you're reading the books, like it's kind of like a fun little thing because we've only ever seen the Gryffindor and the Slytherin entrances, which mm. are passwords. So it's fun to see that the Ravenclaws is different and they, you know, they really do value cleverness because you got to answer this riddle. I like how she was, he was like, what happens if you don't get it? She's, well, then you just wait for someone else and that's how you learn. Like, so nonchalant. He's like, uh... What the fuck? What? <laughs> I know. So they're... Ent- Luna obviously solves the riddle. They enter, and the diadem in the statue is um, a little tiara engraved with Ravenclaw's motto, Wit beyond measure is a man's greatest treasure. And then a voice behind them jokes that Harry must be broke then. And it turns out it's Electo Carol, 
Kara, one of the new professors, and she presses her dark mark to summon Voldemort. Dun, dun, dun. And starting off chapter 30, after Electo summons the Dark Lord, Luna does manage to stun her, apparently awakening the entirety of the Ravenclaw dormitories. She's also very proud of herself because that's the first time that she's done it outside of like DA meetings, and I'm proud of her too. I'm proud of her too. Go, Luna. Yeah, so obviously Voldemort gets this, you know, message, and Harry kind of goes into his mind a little bit, but Voldemort decides to check on the locket before going to Hogwarts because he's like, this won't take long, and, you know, I'll get there. Harry now knows, like, this will be a slight detour, but they still have to move quickly. Yeah. So the Ravenclaw students surround Electo's unconscious body, and Luna and Harry, who are underneath the invisibility cloak, when Amicus gets to the door and starts asking if she's caught Potter. But obviously she can't answer, and he can't figure out the riddle to get inside to see why she's not answering. So McGonagall comes along now, obviously annoyed <laughs> that she's been woken up. But she answers the riddle very easily to allow him into the common room. And this is when we may see Electo on the floor. And Amicus is now frightened because he thinks Electo sent off a false alarm. So he plans to blame the summoning on the students ambushing her. And Minerva's like, um, I'm not going to let you do that. And he's like, oh yeah? And they kind of go back and forth. And he ends up spitting in her face. (laughs) And this was the line because Harry flips off the invisibility cloak and then uses Crucio on Amicus. Not like... Stunning, no, he went straight for Crucio, and McGonagall does not even blink at that. She's like, Harry? Harry? And he has the thing where he's like, I know, I see what Bellatrix meant now, like, you really have to mean it. Wild that Bellatrix killing his godfather was not enough for him to mean it, but Amicus spitting on McGonagall was. (laughs) Yeah. I get it, though. No one disrespects Minnie like that. True. So, unfortunately for Harry, McGonagall also has no idea of the whereabouts of the diadem, and as they discuss a plan, Harry is flooded with Voldemort's wrath as he finds the basin in the cave is empty. So, McGonagall tells them they will fortify the castle while he searches for the object Dumbledore has told him to find, and they'll use the tunnel to the Hogshead, which Harry reveals exists, to evacuate as many students as they can. She sends her Patronus to alert the other heads of house, and they hurry away, but they are intercepted by Severus Snape. So she goes, who's there? And Snape responds, it is I. Like, okay. <laughs> okay, Dracula. Like, let's calm down a little bit. It is I. Sir. Please. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> who, who is it? It is I. So they have a little pissing match going back and forth about the Karos, because that's what it is. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> And the true and the intruder and blah 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 and they descend into a duel, which is pretty cool. I must admit because like there's like a fire lasso and like a big black serpent and they're going. I like. I mean, I like reading the duels. I know. I think it's fun, especially when they do cool magic like this. Other than just stupefy, stupefy, protego, yeah. like that's because they're really talented wizards exactly. and witches. Like they're not like the kids where they only know the basics. Yeah. Like, like they are creative with it. Yeah, that's why I think this duel between Baltimore and Dumbledore at the end of Order of the Phoenix one of my favorites. Oh yeah. It's so cool. My favorite is when he does like the the glass and then there's like a shield and it turns to just sand. Yes. So good. So anyways, back to this one. Yes. <laughs> um, eventually, Slughorn, Flitwick, and Sprout turn up and help McGonagall, causing Snape to flee out of a giant window. There's also the insinuation that he transfigured into a bat. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, there's a fan theory that Severus Snape is a vampire because it says that he 
look like in a bat-like figure, you yeah. know, flying away, which I think is really funny. I don't, I don't personally think he's a vampire. I no. don't succumb to the theory, but I think it's a funny theory. Yeah, because I mean, it could also just be comparing like the f- the figure of his flying body to a bat. Maybe he did transfigure into bat. Yeah, because well, because the other thing that makes me think is. Like, in the books, Voldemort is the only one who can fly. He turns yeah. into that black smoke, and he can fly. And right after this, Harry's like, what the hell? And Hermione, and not Hermione, what? And McGonagall is like, seems like he picked up a few tricks from his master. Yeah. So what I think happened is Snape can now black smoke like Voldemort, and Harry just doesn't know. know that. So for him, he's like, yeah, he kind of looks like a bat, I guess. <laughs> he looks like a little bat. Yeah. So that's what I think actually is what he's talking about. But okay. the theory's fun. Yeah, it's a fun theory. I don't think it's true, but it's cool. So they fill the professors in on the plan, and they instantly set to work protecting the castle. Slughorn voices some doubts, but McGonagall straight up tells him that the time has come for Slytherin House to decide its loyalties, and if anyone stands in resistance to them within the castle, they duel to kill. She is standing on business. She absolutely is, but I think it's rant time. I think it's unfair that they are like they assume that Slytherin might have loyalties to Hogwarts, but also might have um, loyalties to Voldemort. But they also assume that no other house might sympathize with Voldemort. Like I am aware that most followers of Voldemort's are from Slytherin House, but you cannot deny that Peter Pettigrew was from Gryffindor, and there's also plenty of Death Eaters that we don't canonically know their house. They could be Ravenclaws, they could be Hufflepuffs, they could be more Gryffindors. So why is it fair to assume all these negativities about one house in particular and assume only positive things about the others? Like, this is exactly why Peter was able to get away with everything, because they never would have suspected a Gryffindor would align with Voldy. So if they would have treated every house equally with suspicion, maybe betrayals like this wouldn't happen. Not to mention, if you spend seven years telling every student from the time they're 11, a child, that Slytherin is evil, they're horrible, obviously they're gonna be that. Like Nick Wilde said in Zootopia, if the world's only gonna see a fox as shifty and untrustworthy, then that's what it's gonna be. Okay. Um, I also think that maybe perhaps she's speaking to the, um, Slytherin trait of self-preservation. So if she's, that they're going to work to, you know, protect themselves first, are they going to fight for the school? Are they going to take the easy route and protect themselves by aligning with Voldemort here? Right. But we're also assuming that protecting themselves means aligning with Voldemort. Maybe protecting themselves just means dipping. Like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to risk my life. In this case, Slughorn is the head of house. If Slughorn is saying he's not sure if he's going to align with them and fight Voldemort, he's the head of their house. They're going to follow him. I mean, yes, but again, just because he might not want to fight against Voldemort does not, like, like, why are we automatically assuming that means they're going to fight with him? It might just mean they're going to leave and be safe. And she said that if you fight in resistance, then we duel. She didn't say if you flee. She said if you fight against us, we duel. (laughs) That was what she said. Okay, I guess. Like, I get, like, obviously, like, Slytherins aren't all bad, and that's why the J.K. Rowling writes them, but I don't think McGonagall in this case was saying that all Slytherins bad. Like, she's like, now you have, like, everyone has to make their stance. You have to decide. I guess. So, anyways, Filch shows up exasperated that kids are out of bed, but McGonagall tells them they're supposed to be, um, and to go fetch Peeves before using the spell of the episode to cause the statues and suits of armor line the corridor to jump down as they are instructed to man the boundaries and protect the school. When Harry and Luna return to the Room of Acquirement, even more people have entered, including Arthur Molly, 
Remus, Kingsley, Oliver Wood, Katie Bell, Angelina Johnson, Alicia Spinett, Bill and Floor, like, all these crazy, like, I mean, obviously, like, we have the, um, the Order of the Phoenix, but getting his old Quidditch, Quidditch team, team coming back, too, is kind of cool. Yeah. So most of the students now clear out, and Molly argues with Ginny that she's underage and needs to go home like the other underage students, and obviously Ginny's not wanting any part of that. They don't really get to get too far into it, though, because now Percy, like, stumbles out of the tunnel to everyone's surprise, and the room is, like, just tense. Like, everyone's quiet. So Flor is like, um, so, like, how's the baby? And Remus <laughs> is like, uh, yeah, he's good. Do you, like, want to see some pics <laughs> or whatever? Like, they are on the brink of battle and, like, trying to break the tension with some baby pictures. I mean, a good topic to bring up if you're trying to diffuse the tension. Yeah. So Percy admits, you know, he was wrong and apologizes and Molly hugs him. They're all kind of like having this like family healing moment. And Arthur decides Ginny will stay in the room of requirement, but not fight. So this is the compromise. She can stay, but she can't fight. So Harry now asks them where Ron and Hermione are since, you know, he didn't see them pass. But Ginny tells him they said something about a bathroom not long after he left. But, you know, he checks that bathroom by the room of requirement and it's empty. Interesting. So he turns back to, you know, make sure. Like, he's like, are you sure they said something about about a bathroom? But he's cut off by a vision of Voldemort standing at the gates of Hogwarts with Nagini laying over his shoulders and a, quote, cold, cruel sense of purpose that preceded murder. And that is where we end the content for this episode. Crazy cliffhanger. Yeah. But still very exciting. Um, We got, you know, one more book episode where we discuss the rest and I'm very excited to finish it but also I don't know I think it's gonna be so bittersweet. I know we've been doing this for a while so we're almost done with the book deep dives and of course we have other things planned but it'll be looking a little different after we finish be a different routine. Exactly but yeah this was a good a good set of chapters things are picking up again. Yeah exactly so of course we're gonna round it off with some jokes if you will. Great. <laughs> These just get worse and worse every episode. Um, how do you feel about yours? Do you want to go first or do you want me to no, go first? Just go ahead. Okay. Um, did Davi go to school to learn how to do his job? No. He was elf taught. Aww. Toby. <laughs> yeah, he's dead. Sorry, I didn't think about that when I chose my joke. <laughs> it hits so hard. Um, why were the first years afraid of the Hogwarts ghosts? Why? Because they weren't all there. That's funny. Yeah, thank you. I like it. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Alrighty, well, that is all for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our next episode will be our final deep dive into the um, Deathly Hallows book, so make sure you tune in for that. Make sure you guys also follow us online. Our Twitter is at SotherClawRev. Our Instagram is at SotherClawReview. And of course, we have our website. And make sure you guys leave a rating, comment, or review. And tell your friends if you enjoy this podcast. All of this helps us immensely, and we appreciate it so much. Until Until next time. time!